Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Well, this may come as a surprise or not a surprise to many of you, but the very first thing, and Jeremy Lawler, you'll love this wherever you are. Where are you? In the back, okay. Of course. Um, the very first thing that I ever bought with the very first paycheck that I ever got from my very first job that I ever had was U2's The Joshua Tree Album, 1987. One of the greatest records of all time, okay? And uh, preach, yes. Now, this was 1987, and I had a paper route. Now, for, those, for the kids in the room, let me explain this. Before the news came to your phone or across the tweets, uh, it got delivered to your door, and I was one of those essential workers. I had a bike that I bought at a garage sale for $5, and I had a bag full of newspapers that I got up before dawn to roll in rubber band, and then I had a map of addresses taped to the handlebars, and every morning I drove around the city and threw newspapers on people's front porches, Sometimes the wrong house. Some people got the gift of the news that day. But nevertheless, that was my first job. And with the first paycheck I ever made from that first job, I bought U2's The Joshua Tree Record. A great, and U2 at the time, this is 1987, at the time, most songs in the top 10 billboard, whatever, most songs were about girls and girls and drinking and girls, and that's pretty much it. But U2 comes along, and they, they're singing about these very interesting topics like poverty, about injustice, about apartheid, big topic in a, at least a couple of their records. And so they had a different alternative voice in the midst of a really decadent time uh, in music. And that was the first thing I ever bought. I would say it was my first concert, but it wasn't. That was the Beastie Boys, thus the T-shirt today. But... Um, <laughs> But it was my second, which I still have the ticket for the 1987 Joshua Tree. Yes, at the Omni. Rest in peace. <laughs> now, the album, The Joshua Tree, is what I would say, and there's just several of these uh, that you can grab, but I would call it a perfect, complete album, which means you can just hit play and just sit back and go on the journey through the whole record. You don't have to skip. For, again, for the kids, they used to make albums. And uh, the songs would, whatever. 
great album. But the last track on side two of U2's The Joshua Tree was this song titled Mothers of the Disappeared. And it was a very strange song. It didn't really fit the rest of the record. It had this kind of haunting sound to it. And the lyrics were clearly tied to something important, something uh, maybe even painful and traumatic and serious. And I started doing a little bit of digging. And the song itself was inspired by the real-life stories of these Argentine women in the late 70s and 80s who had had their children stolen from their homes by what they called the death squads, these government officials that would come in and just take these children of families who they deemed too too, too much of a risk to the establishment. So the song itself is based in incredible trauma. And they would have these demonstrations in the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires. And all of these women wearing white hoods as a symbol of solidarity and the pain that they were sharing of their children just being gone. Many of them have never been found. Writing about the song, uh, Neil Stokes says, The Edge's guitar is barbed wire, and Bono sounds like Dylan's man of constant sorrow, his yodel a high, lonesome sound. The song is an act of witness, but there is no optimistic note of reassurance. There's too much evil in the world. And one of the great stories uh, or interesting stories from the Mothers of the Disappeared, which they were called, these women, and these protests in the plaza, they would hang up posters around the plaza, and on the posters would be the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus' song that we just heard. And it would be deemed illegal. These cannot be posted. They're too subversive. And so they would be taken down by the officials. In the Tempe, Arizona show in 1987, one of the only times that that, in that tour that they sang this song live, Bono opens up the song saying, they're really afraid of these women. And so we sing this song for them and for their bravery. And I think we have to reckon with what we're reading when we read Mary's words and what is known in the world of the church as the Magnificat, that Latin word that means my soul magnifies the Lord. This Argentine story and many others in history like it remind us that these words of Mary in Luke's gospel uh, are not passive. They're actually not very tame. We've made them tame. We've spiritualized them entirely. But they have been seen by others in the world throughout history as quite powerful, subversive, and disruptive in so many unfair and unjust situations. The song that Mary sings as a reflection of the coming birth of her son, Jesus, beckons us to listen very closely to what she's saying. German theologian and biblical scholar Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in the 1940s, said this about Mary's song. He said, this song is a hard, strong, inexorable song about the collapsing thrones and humble lords of this world. It is about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. And then he says, these are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that have now come to life 
in Mary's mouth. What we often hear when we read this text, where it's read to us, usually around this time of year, what we often hear is a more tame, over-spiritualized version of Mary's song. But when I read this every year, more and more, it strikes me as something that I'm not going to embroider and put in a frame and hang in my stairwell. I don't have a stairwell, but if I had one, I wouldn't hang it there. This is no love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. This is something different. This is something quite interesting in its tone. It's much more serious. As Paul Simon would say uh, in the song, The Sound of Silence, this is no embroidery. This is the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and in tenement halls. And Mary says in her prayer, in her song, for he, God, has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Say the word lowliness with me. Lowliness. This humble nature of who she was, what she was familiar with. This is not just a spiritual humility. This is literally Mary's station in life. She's a woman a young woman living in first century Palestine under Roman rule. She is seen like every other woman as property, second class, if not worse. And in the eyes of some uh, societies at that time, women were just ill-formed men, not even seen as nearly human. And so her station in life is literally low. It's easy to read this and go, she's so humble. I want a prayer life like Mary. No, Mary is voicing a reality about her station in the world. The Greek word for this lowliness is um, it's something that's done to you. It's this sense of being made low. It's this sense of being uh, reduced. I like that word. It puts a new, uh, a new tone in the prayer that he has looked upon this reduced servant, someone who lives in a world where she has no voice, nothing to do, nothing to say. As biblical scholar Scott McKnight said, uh, this is a voice from the bottom of society. So when we read these words, when we hear them, we must hear that. And I think about the stories of Jesus and his dealings with people and their situations in life that Luke's gospel will eventually tell us, that it will invite us into, and how Jesus will enter the worlds of these people who are oppressed, these people who are on the margins, these people who uh, have been reduced in their own right. I think about how Mary's words at the beginning of Luke's gospel here set a tone for what we will see in Jesus, that we will see Jesus approaching these people, loving these people, healing these people, restoring dignity to people who have lost it or it's been taken from them. Luke's gospel, by the way, is the only of the four gospels that highlights, not just mentions, but highlights the women who were Jesus' disciples. He elevates them. He names them. He even says they bankrolled him. <laughs> It's true. You can find it. Luke chapter 8. 
that Jesus was a person who went to the places of the reduced, and he did work there. I love, uh, I don't have my Bible open. That's a bad preacher, isn't it? What are we in, Luke? That's New Testament, correct? The old jokes are the best. Uh, Sorry, we'll cut this from the uh, audio. Okay, this part. Uh, But uh, Mary's words here in 51 through 53, let me read them again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones, and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. Mary's words here are squarely in line with the Jewish and eventual Christian hope of a God who hears the cries of the poor, of those who are oppressed, those who feel forgotten, those who have nothing, those who have been reduced. He is completely in line with this thinking and with this heart, the cry of the poor, the God who lifts the lowly, she says, the God who brings life into dying situations. What Mary is voicing here. Uh, is something that the Bible seems to keep bringing up, and it's this God of reversal, that God is a God of reversal. He's a turnaround God. That's a good God, by the way. That's what you want. You don't want a God that's just same old, same old. You don't want a God who just says, yeah, sorry, you made your bed. This is what you have to do. But a God who turns things around, amen? A God who is a God of reversal. This theme of reversal is deeply theological throughout the entire Bible. And Mary's words here echo that. In her own station, literally and spiritually, we can include that, she exalts God as someone who changes situations. And she exalts a God whose heart is for those who need so desperately for their situations to change. And I love that she specifically sends a warning shot uh, to those with unharnessed arrogance. See, power is not a problem in the Bible if it's harnessed. Unharnessed power is deadly. And those who are in power, if they don't know that, they can become uh, people of unharnessed arrogance and marry sends a warning shot to them that God will reduce that and lift up those who have been reduced by that system. It's a very interesting, powerful thing. In a wider sense, what Mary is talking about is a leveling of the earth, a leveling of everything. I love the words in the middle of the great Tracy Chapman song talking about a revolution where she says, you better run because the tables are finally starting to turn. And that's what I hear when I read Mary's prayer. You better run because all things will be made right. And it's time to stand up and to recognize that. Advent, as we close out this season, is a season about the great reversal. If you've been here all four weeks, And if you've listened just a little, every single sermon text that we've read has been about this. 
we began this season with Jesus's cryptic eschatological, there's your word for the week, uh, end times kind of teaching about the world to come. But it is a world where things are reversed and made right. That's how we began the season. And then for two weeks, we spent time with this strange wilderness-bound man named John the Baptist, who was just calling people to change, to reverse the paths that they were on, and to trust in a God who does the same thing. His phrase, the axe is at the foot of the tree, again, is not a phrase, a statement of judgment, but one of renewal. We cut down what needs to go so that the thing that needs to be there can grow. This whole thing has been about the reversal that God brings, both in our spirits, in our souls, in our relationships, but also in society and in the world in which we all live. And so when we read Mary's words today and all of the readings for this season, one of the questions that we should be asking, particularly with Mary's prayer, her song here is, I'm reading it, but is, is it reading me as well? How am I also proud? In what ways do I need to lift up those of low estate? In what ways am I contributing to the continual oppression of people? Now, I can feel it in the room. I used to be this way too, so I'll just mention it. I used to hate this interpretation of this text. It's too political. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to pick a side. I'm a Jesus guy. I walk into a room and hug everybody. But the longer I've been a pastor, the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I've followed Jesus through the stories of the Gospels, the more and more I see, and this is throughout the Bible itself, but the more and more I see that God is not on the side of oppression and that God hurts when he sees brokenness in societies. And so that when Mary speaks these words, they read me as well. They constantly remind me to keep in check my own power, my own influence, my own ways of seeing and dealing with the people around me. Mary's song begins with the word Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. God, my Savior. This is not about a salvation from sin for Mary. This is about a person in desperation. That's what a Savior does. It comes to the, those in desperation. And so there are two Advent prayers for us as we close. One, that the ways of God would come to life in us. This was John the Baptist's message in the Advent season. I need you to prepare a place in your life for the residency of God. Do that. Make sure that there's room for God's residency in you. That's an Advent prayer. But the other one is simply that the ways of God would cover the earth. The ways of God, the ways of justice, the ways of mercy, the ways of grace and truth would cover the earth, that a righteous life is one that seeks restoration and renewal and dignity and the image of God in all people. Amen? And so when Jesus speaks these words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that, like Mary, 
like you and me, they will be filled. This is the promise, and this is the Advent hope, that the coming of Christ that we will celebrate in this room next Friday night is a beautiful story, and it means so much for who we are as people and our relationship with God and all of that, absolutely 100%. But Jesus also had other things that he did that had more to do with just the general state of affairs for people who have been forgotten and reduced and pushed out. We have to remember that as we not only hear Mary's words, but as we reflect on what this season means. Amen. Amen.